Well, I recently had the opportunity to share the gospel with somebody uh, who knew absolutely nothing, for the most part, of any of the truth claims of the Christian faith. And uh, it was more difficult than I assumed that it would be because they didn't really have any of the categories that you and I take for granted, that I take for granted every time that I get up here and talk to you. And so, for example, one God, three persons. Okay, explain that particularly to somebody who didn't maybe grow up with that, who hasn't heard that, who hasn't kind of interacted with those ideas, okay, and that God is the creator God. He created all things, and all things were very good until we corrupted them with our sin. And then that God became a man through a supernatural conception in the birth of Jesus Christ and came into this world, and He lived the perfect life that we have not because that's what God requires of us. He took upon Himself our sin in one man whose life is of infinite value because He is God-made man is crucified, suffers, dies as the payment of all of the sin for all of the people who would put their faith in him. It would come to him and say, I'm yours and you're mine. And he rose again from the dead, you know, and I'm I'm explaining these precious, amazing, incredible, eternally life-changing truths to this person who's never heard any of this stuff before. And so for the first time in a long time, I'm listening to it with the ears of you know, somebody who's never heard this before. And I thought to myself, this sounds a little odd. I mean, if you're just taking it in for the first time, doesn't it? I want you to interact with that reality. Apart from faith, okay, what we believe sounds a little odd, maybe even more than odd. I mean, if you just take a small fraction of what we believe, we believe in a God who we cannot see with our eyes, hear with our ears, taste with our mouths, smell with our noses, or touch with our hands, right? And not only do we we believe that He exists, but we believe that He owns us, the entirety of us, that we are to live all that we have, all that we are, everything, full on, all in, for this invisible, I cannot see Him, smell Him, hear Him, taste Him, God, and to do that in the midst of this world, which is I can see, smell, hear, taste, touch it world. Okay, apart from faith, eh, you know, seems a little crazy. And take your wealth, for example. Our God and King comes to us and He says, I want you to worship me with your wealth. Like that is the most tangible and obvious of things, isn't it? In this, I can see it, smell it, hear it, taste it, touch it world. Give me 10% right off the top and then put the rest at my disposal because by that 10%, what you're saying is I own 100 and I'm going to direct you to be generous from time to time, and you're going to do it because I'm the king, you're the servant. Okay, listen, hear that with the ears of someone who does not share your faith with a minute because here's what they're thinking as you're explaining that. They're thinking, hold hold on a second. Let me see if I got this right. You can take your money and you can invest it in what you can see and smell and hear and taste and touch, enjoy, store up, etc. in this world right here, right now, or here's the alternative. You can invest it in the unseen kingdom of your unseen king who has saved your unseen soul and who will reward you with unseen treasure in heaven. Oh, that's unseen too, isn't it? In an as yet unseen future. Did I get that right? Wow. What about parenting? Our king says that the spiritual education of our children is more important than any other aspect of education. And there's not even a close second. 
Okay, again, try explaining that to somebody who doesn't share our faith because they're thinking, oh, no, 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 no. Let me tell you what matters most. What matters most is the practical. What matters most is the pragmatic. What matters most are the maths and the sciences and all those kinds of things that this, your child, is going to be able to use to build a life for himself or herself where? In the I can see it, smell it, hear it, taste it, touch it world. Then, of course, our king lays claim to our sex life. He claims it entirely. He governs over this most personal and private area of our entire existence. And when you explain his regulations to someone who does not share his faith, let me tell you what they're thinking. They're not thinking. They're laughing. They're laughing. Because it seems utterly ridiculous. Such is the absurdity of our faith. Last category, though there are many more, our king calls us, to live for Him in the workplace. And so, for example, He calls us to be ruthlessly ethical in the workplace, even when that's going to cost us a bunch of money, even when nobody's going to know and we'd never get caught. He comes to us and says, hey, you have employees, great. You are to treat them fairly. You are to treat them humanely. You are to do all these things that are going to hit your bottom line and that maybe nobody else in your industry does, but you're going to do it. Oh, you're an employee? Okay, here's the deal. You are to bring your best all of the time. And yes, I know that maybe your employer doesn't deserve your best and they haven't compensated you fairly and they don't treat you with dignity and it doesn't matter. You're not doing it to please them. You're not doing it for a paycheck. You're not doing it for self-advancement or promotion or recognition. You are doing it because you consciously recognize that you ever live in the presence of your king and you're looking to his reward. We're good with that. But I think we ought not to be surprised when the rest of the world looks at that and goes, man, you know, I mean, that sounds nuts. And we ought not to be surprised because what is faith? You see, when you understand its definition, you realize immediately, okay, well, that's why everybody else thinks it's crazy, but also why it's not crazy. So listen to the definition. Hebrews 11, verse 1 says, now faith is the assurance, that's a very important word, of things, not that you already have in your hands, not that you can already see, smell, hear, taste, and touch. Oh, no, no, no. It's the assurance of things hoped for, the clear implication then being that you do not already have these things. However, the clear implication also is that you are absolutely sure, that you are absolutely certain, that you are absolutely positive that you will one day have them. It's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things, not at least today, seen, but that you are so convicted that you will see them, well, that you can live differently today. It's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's faith, and that's what enables us to live today in a way that looks crazy to absolutely everyone else. And you say, all right, well, that's interesting, but where does that faith come from? Where does that assurance come from? Where does that conviction come from? You know what? I can't see it now. I can't smell it now. I can't taste it now. I can't touch it now. I can't hear it now. I can't use it now. I can't store it now. I can't spend it now. Oh, but it's real and I will. So much so that I'm going to live differently today. Okay, where does that come from? And the answer is, it comes from God's Word. And Paul tells us that. Romans 10, verse 17, he says, so faith, which is what we're talking about, comes from hearing and hearing through the what? Through the Word of Christ. Let me try to illustrate this. Let's imagine that you're driving home today from church 
and your phone rings. And even though it's illegal, you look at it because, you know, it's irresistible, right? You can't, you can't resist that. And you realize, hey, Tom is calling me. And so you let it go to voicemail because you've heard enough from me today already at that point. Okay? But later on, you say, all right, I'm going to listen to the voicemail. And you listen to the voicemail, and here's what I say. Beth and I have been talking it over, and we have Wednesday night open at our house. And we were wondering if you would be able to come over with your family for dinner. We'd just love to hang out with you, get to know you a little bit better. Does Wednesday night work for you? End of message. Now, what at that point do I, Tom, and does my wife, Beth, have? We have a hope so. We hope you can make it. We hope you can make it on Wednesday night. We hope you can make it on Wednesday night, truth be known, at 5.30, because otherwise I'm going to need a snack, all right? We have a hope so, but here's what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to paint the house and, and resod the yard and trim the bushes and pressure clean the roof and dry. I'm not going to do all of the things that, to my wife's great consternation, I completely neglect to do all year long until we invite you to come to our house. I'm not going to do any of that. And just like she's not going to go to Publix and buy extra food and, you know, make the kids clean the house and everybody's going to get ready like that would be crazy to do that. Now, why would that be crazy? Because all I have is a hope so. But now let's say you call me back and you say, you know what? Got your message. Wednesday night works and 530 is great and we'll be there. Do we need us to bring anything? No, just show up. Okay, now what are we going to do? I'm going to Home Depot, man. (laughs) We're springing into action now, and that's not crazy. Why? Because now I have the assurance of what I had only previously hoped for. I have the conviction that on Wednesday, even though I can't see it today, today's Sunday, I'm going to see you somewhere around 5.30, or I'll be eating nuts, okay? And it's perfectly reasonable now. For me to behave today based on what I have become assured and convicted will occur on Wednesday. And what is it that has given me this faith? It's your word. See how it works? And it is the same thing with the Lord. It is the assurance of His infallible word. It is the conviction of His perfect word, guys, that changes the way that we live in the right here and in the right now, and that allows us to live for our unseen king and for the advancement of his unseen kingdom. But understand that by definition, that's going to look crazy to everybody that does not share our assurance or have our conviction or possess our faith. But it's not crazy if God's word is true. And here's the difference between God's word and my word and your word. Like you could call me Wednesday at five and go, hey, you know, little Johnny just threw up, but we think maybe it was just something that he ate. Do you want us to still come answer? No. (laughs) I'm going to bathe in Purell when I hang up the phone, okay? Like a germ freak. You know what? This deal blew up for me at the office and I'm going to have to work late tonight. You work, Tom, so sorry. We're going to have to cancel. Hey, you know what? No, no problem. It's, it's fine. There's no contingencies with the Lord. When he speaks, that's it. When he promises, there is nothing and no one to prevent him from fulfilling his promises. Look, it's crazy to everybody else, but 
It's not crazy if God's Word is true. And as we return today to our study of this book of 1 Samuel, and we enter into chapter 13 today, and we look at that, and hopefully you've read it already and worked through it meditationally in your personal worship this week. Here's what we're going to see. We're going to see that our great God and King calls us to trust in and therefore then to obey, to live in light of His Word as truth. Okay, even when sometimes we look at it and think, this looks crazy. And certainly people who do not possess our faith, well, they don't have a category for it. Yeah. We pick up our study today in 1 Samuel 13. We're going to start in verse 2, where we read this. We read that Saul, who is the brand new and who is the first ever king of Israel, chose 3,000 men of Israel. So what is Saul doing? He's creating a standing army for the nation of Israel, but he is also at the same time fulfilling one of the prophecies that Samuel, the great prophet of Israel, gave to the people of Israel when they requested a king back in chapter 8. He said, hey guys, if you get a king, let me tell you what he's going to do. He will take from you. And the first thing that Samuel told them that he would take is their sons. So let me read it again. Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. It's already happening. He's taking their boys. And 2,000 were with Saul in a place called Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, which is about seven miles northeast of Jerusalem. And here's why that matters. It is the high ground. It is a strategically valuable place for Saul and his army to be if an enemy is coming. Good place. So 2,000 were with Saul and Michmash in the hill country of Bethel in that strategically valuable location. And 1,000 of these soldiers were then with Jonathan, who is Saul's son, in Gibeah of Benjamin, which also happens to be their hometown. And the rest of the people Saul had sent home, every man to his own tent. And now notice what Jonathan does because it provokes a war. Jonathan, it says, defeated the garrison. And there's some question as to what that word means it may more likely mean the prefect. It may be speaking of a particular high-ranking political official of the Philistines who no doubt also had a garrison of soldiers with him in this location of Geba, which is actually in what would be called this area of Israel that would have been inhabited by the Israelites. And so it's almost like a political assassination in some sense. He attacks these guys, he wipes out their garrison, and he kills this man. And that is not met with joy and happiness by the rest of the Philistine nation. And the Philistine people who inhabit these five large cities along the Mediterranean coast to the west of where we're talking about here, hear of it. And they begin to mobilize their full force for war with Israel. And so Saul, who gets wind of this, blew the trumpet throughout all the land of Israel, saying, let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard that it was said that Saul, through Jonathan, had defeated the garrison or that particular political official of the Philistines. But here's what else they heard. They also heard that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines who were now mobilizing for war against them. And so the people of Israel were called out to join Saul, but not at the strategically valuable location of Michmash. No, no, no. Saul's left there. And he has gone to the strategically vulnerable low ground of the city of Gilgal. And you're like, why in the world would he leave the high ground for the low ground? And the clear, I think, implication of this is 
Well, then he got word from Samuel, the prophet who brings the word of God, who said, go to Gilgal, meet me there, and wait for me. There are different offices in Israel. There's a new office coming into play here, the office of the king. And the king needs to learn to respect the God-ordained duties as recorded in God's word of the other offices of priest, of prophet. It is for the priest to offer the sacrifices, not the king. It is for the priest to offer the prayers of the people. It is for the prophet to speak the word of God, including the word of God to the king. Keep those things in mind. Saul is supposed to wait for Samuel to show up so that Samuel can then offer the sacrifices, and the sacrifices had to be offered, and the prayers had to be prayed before war. And so the people of Israel were called out to join Saul at the strategically vulnerable city of Gilgal, which is where Saul went in obedience to the Lord. And there we read that the Philistines, listen to this, mustered to fight with Israel, and now notice the numbers, and compare them to Saul's 3,000 foot soldiers. Here's what we have in the world in which we can see, smell, hear, taste, and touch. And put Saul's sandals on, guys. That's what you're supposed to do. The Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, and here's what they mustered. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops. What's the number? You know what? They're so numerous, we can't even count them. It's like going to the beach and trying to count the sand. It's ridiculous. They're like the sand on the seashore in multitude, and they came up and encamped where? In the strategically valuable high ground of Michmash to the east of beth that Saul has just left in obedience to God's word. So thank you, Lord. And not only were the Philistines far, vastly superior numerically and vastly superior now strategically because they have the high ground, but as we learned toward the end of this chapter, they were vastly superior technologically, and that's a really big deal. They had moved into the Iron Age. Okay, Israel is still in the Bronze Age, guys. So when we read about this army of Israel, you know, all 3,000 of them, two of them have swords. Two. Saul and his son, Jonathan. The Philistines all have swords. So let's do the math. In the world in which we can see, smell, hear, taste, and touch, here's how this sizes up. You play Vegas and just put the odds on this, okay? We have the Philistines on the one hand, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 cavalry. Yeah, we're not even going to try to count the soldiers. It's ridiculous. There's just way too many of them. They have the strategic high ground, by the way. Oh, and they have far superior weaponry. So that's what they have. On the other hand, you have Israel, and they have 3,000 soldiers, though that number, as we'll see, rapidly dwindles to about 600. Uh, they're at the strategic low ground, so that, that's not helpful. And, uh, and, but two of their soldiers have swords, so that's awesome. That's inspiring. And they have the Lord. If only they will trust in and obey His Word as truth, who He is, what He is capable of. Guys, they have the Lord. I know it looks crazy to the rest of the world, but let me tell you, biblically speaking, here's the reality. 
Put your money on the Israelites. It is a total no-brainer. It's not even close. But that's not what happens. What happens is, we read in verse 6, that when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, at least according to what you can see, smell, hear, taste, and touch, the people hid themselves, and it's like all underground. They hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns, which are underground water tanks, if you will. And so what they're doing is, I mean, the battle hasn't even begun. The Philistines haven't even arrived. Samuel hasn't even come. They haven't even called on the name of the Lord yet. And they're already pretending like they're dead. They're burying themselves in the ground before they're even killed is the point. And more than that, they're defecting. It says some of the Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. So they're leaving Saul's army and they're fleeing before the Philistines even arrive. And yet Saul, who at this point has to be thinking, you know, this king thing is really not what I thought it was going to be, right? I mean, this is not a lot of fun for me. Nevertheless, Saul was still at Gilgal waiting for Samuel to come and offer these sacrifices and prayers, watching his people bury themselves in the ground and watching his army flee and defect from him. And while Saul waited... All of the people who hadn't either voluntarily buried themselves in the ground or defected, now imagine this image, followed Saul around, trembling, which had to be awesome for his nerves. Don't you think? That's who you'd want to be surrounded by. I want you to imagine this from Saul, from his perspective. And now we come to the crux of the issue. Now we get to the heart of the story, for we read that Saul waited seven days. The exact time is the point appointed by Samuel in which Samuel, doggone it, was supposed to show up. But Samuel did not show up. He did not come to Gilgal, and meanwhile... The people were scattering from Saul all the more probably as they realized, hey, maybe the prophet isn't coming. <laughs> you know, I was hanging on, waiting until he got here, but now he's not, he's late and it's, you know, maybe he's not coming at all. And, you know, this is a bad place to be, no doubt. So they're defecting. And so here's what Saul said. He said, guys, according to the word of God, I'm supposed to wait here for Samuel. According to the Word of God, I need to honor the role of the priest in this nation, and only he, and that Samuel, can offer these sacrifices according to God's Word. Hey, hey, you know what? We have to offer the sacrifices before we go into battle against the Philistines, and so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to wait for Samuel to show up, even if that means I'm the only guy standing when he finally arrives Because even if it's just me and the Lord, the smart money is on us. The Philistines are done. I'm not the least bit worried. 
No, he totally caves. And he says, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And then in a faithless act of clear disobedience that I can totally relate to, he offered the burnt offerings himself. Saul is a study of faithlessness in the Bible. Saul is a study of a guy who does not live according to what he cannot see, but he's assured of. Because of God's word, he doesn't trust in God's word. He doesn't obey it as truth. He lives in light of what he can see, smell, hear, taste, and touch. And I can totally relate to this guy. I think in this part of his story, more than in any other part of his story. I don't find him to be a sympathetic character in the Bible, but I can sympathize with him here. I want you to remember what's at stake for this guy is not just a percentage of his income. It's not just, you know, the educational focus of his children. It's not just his sex life or the business practices or ethics that he adheres to. What's at stake is his own life, the life of every single member of his family. Oh, and the existence of his nation because the Philistines are coming to wipe them out. And by the way, Samuel's late. I would ask you, what are your Philistines? And here's what's funny, if it didn't also seem so cruel. God is the one who's put him in this incredibly trying situation. And he's put him in this incredibly trying situation on purpose, which speaks to our lives as well. I mean, as you move through Hebrews chapter 11 and you come to verse 6, one of the things that you learn is that what pleases God. So if you're wondering, hey, what is it that pleases God? It is faith. It is demonstrations of faith. It is times where, you know what, your life to the rest of the world that does not have your faith looks frankly a little bit nuts because you have the assurance of what you've hoped for, the conviction of things that you cannot see and yet you live today in light of. And so then does it not make sense that God will give us opportunity after opportunity after opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to manifest that faith? to show forth that faith, to exercise that faith, to grow that faith. And yet I'm going to tell you, it's trying in light of what we can see and smell and hear and taste and touch. God is coming to Saul as he does to us through our circumstances. And let's be honest, our circumstances are a lot less intense than this. And we fail. He's coming to him and he's saying, Saul, here's the question that I've arranged through all of this. Are you going to trust in and obey my word as truth? Even though it looks crazy, it looks crazy to you. It looks crazy to everyone else. All of these people who are following around, trembling, are going, hey man, don't you think we better off with a sacrifice? Hey man, do you think something happened to Samuel? Hey, you know, he's kind of old. I think maybe the walk killed him. You know, I mean, who knows? This is a dangerous place to be. Like if you could be anywhere but here, as all of our defecting troops are now proving, you know, that would be better to be somewhere else, humanly speaking. Don't you think you should do this? We need to do this. We need to... What are you going to do? Because it's not just the question for Saul. We face it all the time. And Saul, Saul takes matters into his own hands. Saul offers the sacrifice. Saul caves. He caves. And then Samuel shows up. 
Verse 10, it says, as soon as Saul had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, look, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. I'm thinking I would have gone out and punched him right in the mouth. No, really, I mean, seriously, what is your problem, Samuel? Hello? I thought we were in this together, man. I mean, I'm here. I left the strategically valuable high ground to come here, which was about the only thing we had going for us, incidentally, humanly speaking. And I come here seven days, seven days come and go. Seven days in which my army is defecting. The people are burying themselves in the ground. I got this whole group of like nervous Neds following me around, telling me I need to, you know, do something, do something, do something, do something. And good grief, it's in me to do something. And then you're late. You don't show up. What is your problem? And here's what's really irritating. Samuel doesn't seem the least bit stressed out. It's like he's going, what? Oh, I'm late? Well, look at that. Whatever. What is the author of the story doing? He's saying, let me give you two contrasting pictures. And you pick which one you are. Saul... He's the see, smell, hear, taste, touch guy. He's the I don't really believe the Word of God in light of what I'm freaking out over right now guy. And Samuel, who's in just as much danger and is at peace because he has the assurance of things hoped for. He has the conviction of things not seen. Samuel's thinking, look, if it's just me and the Lord, by the time the Philistines get here, we're good. No problem. No worries. And so Samuel rebukes Saul, but not just Saul. Everybody who identifies with Saul. Samuel comes to Saul just like the Lord came to Adam in the garden after the fall. And he says, what have you done? And Saul, and then here comes all the excuses that I totally buy. Like, I'm, I'm all in. Like, I, I'm going, yeah, I'm, I'm, I hear you, man. But they sound just like Adam. Samuel says, what have you done? And Saul said, well, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, so nobody stood with me, man, so it's, it's kind of their fault. When I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you, incidentally, did not come within the days appointed, so it's really kind of your fault, and that the Philistines had now mustered this great army at Michmash, you know, the strategically valuable high ground that in obedience to God I left, and so then it's kind of God's fault. I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at the strategically vulnerable place of Gilgal where the Lord has disposed of me. And I have not sought the favor of the Lord, which I know I have to do. And so I forced myself. I had to make myself do something that under the circumstances I justify. But usually, you know, look, I really, I wouldn't do it. It's against my character. No, it isn't. It's not. That's the point. I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done wisely from the perspective of the world, but you have done foolishly from the perspective of the Lord. And one of the questions in this story is, all right, which perspective is going to matter for us? 
Which one is reality or the reality in which we're going to live? He says, you have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. And if you had, well, then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. And so as Adam brought ruin upon his dynastic family, Saul has brought ruin upon his dynasty as well. It shall not continue. Forget this, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, meaning someone who will trust in and obey God's word as truth. Even when it looks a little odd. Even when everybody else is going, what? That's crazy. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Guys, our king comes to us and he calls us to trust in and to obey his word as truth. Even, okay, when that looks a little bit nuts or a lot to us, but certainly to everyone who does not share our faith. So let me ask you these two questions and they're related. Number one, do you trust in and obey God's word as truth, even when that looks crazy to you? And even when it really looks crazy to everyone else. And then number two, what does your life say in response to that question? In other words, can you identify an area of your life in which your life actually does look crazy to people who do not share your faith? Does your accountant call you up every year and go, hey, are you making this stuff up? Seriously, like really? Do your parenting choices make your friends wonder if you're kind of weird? Is your sexual ethic good for a laugh in the community? And does the way that you do business, at least occasionally, make people scratch their head and think to themselves, okay, either he or she is nuts, or maybe, just maybe, this Jesus is more valuable than money, or more valuable than recognition, or more valuable than fill in the blank. Maybe this Jesus exists. So do you trust in and obey His word as truth even when it looks crazy to you and everyone else? And what does your life say in response to that question? Okay, wrestle with that this afternoon. Please, let's pray. Father, we do thank You for the One who in obedience to Your Word and in faith that He would be raised from the dead entered into this world, lived a life of sorrows that we might know His joy, lived a life of poverty that we might know His riches, lived a life of pain and suffering that we might know His healing, And though he was completely innocent, endured great injustice that we might be spared justice by the Lord. We thank you that he found your word to be true and that he was raised from the dead on the third day. And we pray, Lord, that you would in him forgive all of the times that we have found Your Word too crazy to believe. And we pray that You would in Him 
Give us the faith by the power of Your Spirit to trust You when the Philistines muster on our border and we are terribly outnumbered and out-strategized, if that's a word, when we are vulnerable. Lord, make us to be faithful, win or lose, to the God who in the end has secured our victory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.